I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We are nearing, although I do think I want to spend one more Sunday next week in the series called The Wind Blows as we're talking about the Holy Spirit. I want us to, to look again at Pentecost and specifically at the message that Peter was preaching on that day of Pentecost that's found in Acts chapter 2 and want to highlight one significant part of that that I think is, uh, is instructive for us today. So I invite you to stand with me. We're going to start there in Acts 2 and then we'll turn briefly to Galatians chapter 3. I'm using my wife's glasses, I, so just be aware that these are not these are female glasses. But uh, I'm trying to uh, to uh, not make any other statement than that that I lost my I lost my glasses somewhere this morning. Beginning here with verse 14, it says, "Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say." These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then turning to Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 3, just begin here down in verse 26. Hear the word. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. Thank you. As I've said, uh, over these last few weeks, we've been studying the person and the activity of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, the Spirit of God formed a new community. We call it the church. And I want to highlight one significant aspect of that community this morning to see that regardless of gender, Peter points out, men and women would be empowered and gifted for preaching and ministry. Peter, in this message, his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, chooses to quote the prophet Joel. This is what the prophet said. This has been God's intent. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now, even in our day, it turns out that that is rather controversial. I'm thinking of one pastor in particular that many of you, I'm sure, listen to, perhaps on the radio, who, who takes the view that women should not ever fill a pastoral role. And, and, and he leaves no room for another interpretation. And to be frank, as I listen to him, I, I think he's quite ungracious and quite haughty in his attitude. 
for one who, who advertises grace to you, it would be nice for him to show grace and uh, at least show some humility from time to time. But several years ago in this church, we had a female youth pastor and she preached one Christmas Eve service. She shared for about 10 minutes, reflecting on Jesus coming as the Son of God, God incarnate, and it was a moving message. However, one lady in our congregation wrote to me to say, in fact, how disappointed she was to come to Christmas Eve and, as she said, hear a woman preaching or meditating or leading or whatever you want to call it, unquote and that she was looking for a church that when she was looking for a church, when she wanted to come to a church that was biblical and did not have women as pastors. Now, she assumed, of course, that, the, that a church that had a woman as a pastor was taking an unbiblical position. Well, my response to her as the pastor of the church was, I know you come out of a different denominational background. But you need to know that in the Friends Church, we are a Friends Church, from the very beginning with our founder, George Fox, back in the 1600s, we have tried to model the community that Jesus created, where both men and women could use all their gifts given by the Holy Spirit to lift up, to edify his church. If you know anything about Friends history, you know that the very first missionaries to North America were actually women, Ann Fisher and Mary Austin. Our, our church uh, hasn't, therefore, suddenly gone liberal. In fact, we are very traditional. It has been our tradition that women were always leaders and teachers and preachers in our denomination. And so as a Friends church, we take that to be the biblical view, and I gave her some verses and thoughts to consider. Now, she was not content with my answers, and in fact became so upset that she and her husband, who ironically, it seemed to me, never said a word. He just followed her, whatever you want, dear, and they left the church. Of course, when anyone leaves the church, it saddens me. It doesn't make me ever feel good. But I think from time to time, it's my job as your pastor, it's a good idea to outline what our church believes and why we believe it. And one of our teachings is, is that all men and women who love the Lord and are gifted by him may minister as we share in the priesthood of all believers. That's what it means, women therefore may lead as teachers and elders and, yes, even pastors. So let me begin. The world that Jesus lived in was dominated by men. In that time, a standard Jewish morning prayer opened with the line, Blessed art thou, O God, who did not make me a woman. Thank you, God. That was what they thought. In that culture, women simply didn't count. In order, for instance, to have a regular synagogue meeting, you had to have at least 10 men present. It didn't matter how many women, that they didn't count. Now, Jesus, of course, comes along, and he has a much less stringent quorum. He said, wherever two or three are gathered, regardless, 
didn't matter gender, you could assume that he was there with you. Rabbis generally in that day, and of course there are some variations, but rabbis in that day generally held women to be inferior to men. A common rabbinic saying at that time went like this, it is better the Torah, the book of the law, it is better the Torah be burned than it should be taught to a woman. And so as a result, women weren't educated. They didn't learn to read. Never mind did they have any real opportunities to ever take leadership. Now that's the world that Jesus lived in. There was, uh, uh, in fact, a group of rabbis who were so devout to their idea and worldview, they made a vow that not only would they not teach a woman, but they wouldn't touch a woman. And in fact, the most radical of them would not ever look at a woman. Now, you try to do that and go through life. Imagine going through, that would be pretty difficult. If out of the corner of their eye, they saw a figure that, that perhaps looked like a woman, that would close their eyes and keep their eyes closed until she had passed out of their line of sight. They were forever, of course, walking into things. They were known as the bruised and bleeding rabbis because of their lifestyle. They might hurt their bodies, but at least they wouldn't be caught looking at a woman and being defiled as such. That's the world Jesus lived in. Women in that day could not give testimony in court because they were not to be uh, thought of as credible witnesses. Now, that is ridiculous to us, but for example, if a man killed someone and a hundred women saw him do it, but a man wasn't there to witness it, he, of course, would go free. That's the world Jesus lived in. That's why when you read the Gospels, if you think of it, you realize that when Jesus comes, he turns the world upside down. He changes everything. And so you begin to study his ministry, you soon realize that he dealt with women in a completely natural and unself-conscious way that they were real persons who had much to offer. In fact, so much so, Luke reports in chapter 8, listen to this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I want you to pause for a moment and think about the significance of this statement. We, 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 we can maybe skip over this, but we can't miss just how absolutely shocking these words would have been to the ancient world. Jesus was up to something. He's forming this little community, and it's made up of women and men who travel and study and learn and do ministry together. You see, Jesus had more than 12 disciples, the 12 disciples, of course, they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, but there were many more disciples, and many of them were women, and he was training them, teaching them, 
giving them responsibility. I just want you to kind of get a sense of how countercultural that was in the first century. A new kind of community that Jesus is, informed, is in fact forming. And by the way, who's paying for the gig? Interesting. The women are. Even in our day, it can be a little sensitive if the wife is making more than the husband. But in Jesus' day, women are paying for his ministry, and not only did he not consider it demeaning or threatening, he welcomed it. Remember, uh, one day, Jesus came to visit Mary and Martha in their home. Martha is in the kitchen, and she's doing pretty much what you would expect a woman to do, cooking and cleaning and preparing the meal and preparing for the party. But of course, wait a second there, where's Mary? Well, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's being taught, she's learning, she's listening to him. Well, of course, Martha gets upset. She says, wait, tell Mary, Jesus, to come and, and help me with the dishes, help me with the food, whatever it was. And Jesus says, no. Mary's chosen the better part. It's not going to be taken away from her. Wow. I remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. She's a nobody as far as even the Jews are concerned, but apparently not to Jesus because there he is. He sits with her at the well. In fact, they enter a deep theological conversation on the nature of worship. Imagine this. And she is so moved. The Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 39, and from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I had done. And so this woman right there becomes this marvelous, remarkable evangelist, and her whole town comes out and begins to follow Christ. I'm so glad that there weren't some of the preachers of our day there to tell her, sit down, be quiet, you aren't allowed to speak. But according to the New Testament, what we see in the Gospels, by the way, written by men, when Jesus went to the cross, the disciples, the 12, they scattered because they were afraid. But remember who stayed there. It was the women. According to the Gospels in the New Testament, again, written by men, the absolute fulcrum, the hinge point of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us, if Christ be not raised, then we are lost. We are without hope. Our faith is in vain. The whole thing is worthless, Paul said. And yet the whole truth of the Christian faith rests on the truth of the resurrection. And who were the witnesses to the empty tomb? Who was the first person to the empty tomb? It was the women. Who first announced proclaiming a truth that every pastor who ever takes a pulpit wants to proclaim? He is risen. He is alive. It was the women who announced that first. They were the ones who shared that message. 
In fact, one of the key evidences, it seems to me, that suggests the validity of the resurrection is that if you had wanted to make the story up, you would have never included the women as, your, as the basis of your witness, eyewitness account. In fact, one Roman historian by the name of Celsus in the second century, he was not a believer, but he stated this, echoing his culture, the resurrection rests on tales of hysterical, hysterical females. It didn't make sense to him. And yet it was their announcement, he's alive, that has shaken the foundations of history. But we're not done. Then comes Pentecost. The church is born through the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus descends on the church, and it's a new age, it's a new community, it's a new time because of what Christ has done. And so Peter says, in this new community, your sons and daughters will prophesy. All people will receive my spirit, now prophecy, prophesying was the equivalent of preaching. So they will be preachers and prophets, men and women. And God pours out his spirit on everybody. All humanity, all nations, all people are included in this. In fact, we, we see this very clearly laid out in Acts 21. It says, leaving the next day, we reached uh, Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. In other words, all four of his young daughters were in ministry. They were preaching and teaching and leading. F.F. Bruce, now that's an eminent New Testament scholar. Maybe some of you have read some of his work. But he talks about how in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story gives an account of God creating human beings. And he creates them, of course, in his image. And he creates them male and female. In other words, he says, in the narrative of Genesis 1, there is no question of priority, let alone superiority, that arises. But when you get to Genesis 3, and you have the fall of humanity, humanity sins, well, things do change. And so God says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. You see, that was part of the curse of sin. That means in our sinfulness, in our sinful human condition, that's where the subjugation occurs. The, the subjugation of women, the, the notion of limiting their value and opportunity, which by the way is almost universal, is an indication of our fallenness. And some of us are just culturally conditioned to that notion. But Jesus has come to break the curse. We don't have to live there. So along comes the Apostle Paul. And so he writes this revolutionary statement we read in Galatians. There is neither Jew or Gentile slave nor free nor is there male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus now this is a guy who was steeped in Jewish tradition he knew the culture he knew how things were 
And he says, and he gives this radical idea, because of Jesus, the world has changed. It's different. And if you read Paul closely, my goodness, you begin to see this change. And I just want to show you what I mean, because this is radical. This is revolutionary. Near the end of his book in the letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 16, this is how he begins that chapter. He says to, to them, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. She's helped me again and again. And why is Paul telling the church there to receive Phoebe? By the way, she's a deacon. She's a leader. She's a minister. But it's even more than that. Paul commends her to the Roman church because she is the one who is delivering the letter. She's the one who brings the book of Romans to the church. Now think about that. The book of Romans is considered to be Paul's greatest exposition of the gospel. The doctrine of the justification of faith alone is entrusted to this woman to be delivered to the church at Rome. And so who do you think would stand up and read that letter when she got there? Who do you think answered the questions when they said to her, what exactly did Paul mean by such and such? It was Phoebe. Verse three, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Now, of course, you can't take too much into this, but it's significant that Priscilla is mentioned first. She is the more prominent one. They're both fellow co-workers in the cause of the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila are acting as pastors in their congregation, in their home. Paul's not done. Verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. She's a leader, but verse 7, that gets interesting. Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia. My fellow Jews who have been prisoned with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before I was. Now, it'd be interesting to, to kind of take a, a, a survey here, but many of your translations have it not as Junia, but Junius. Uh, it's interesting. Junius is a male name. Junia is a female name. The earliest manuscripts have it as Junia, a female. But the problem was, is well, wait a minute, among the apostles, she and Andronicus are considered by Paul to be apostles. They've served the church. They're ministers. So somewhere along the line, a scribe saw that and said, wait a minute, you can't have a woman apostle. I'll add an S here and fix this. And so many of the translations will have a male name there, 
but the most reliable ones accede to the idea that that, man, that name is a female name, kind of like what we do, just a little bit different. You have the name Paul, you add an A, get Paula, changes the, 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 the gender. That's what apparently was happening in this passage. But she was a leader, an apostle, outstanding among the apostles, in fact. But of course, we just don't see this in Romans. In Philippians 4, 3, Paul writes, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellows, help these women who have, con been, who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So my, my argument is this. If Jesus thought that women could be taught, and he did, if he accepted them in his little band of disciples, and he surely did. If he decided to entrust the credibility of his resurrection, the single most shattering news in the history of the human race, to a group of women who were not even allowed to testify in court, and he did. If he created a community where in the power of his Holy Spirit, there is no longer male and female, and everyone is allowed to use their gifts according to his grace in his kingdom, and he did, then I think it's about time the church gets on board with the one we say we follow. But wait a second, Pastor, wait a second. You mentioned Paul. And Paul, of course, in his letters, says a couple of very direct things about women in the church. And your message, at least on the surface, seems to be in direct contradiction to what Paul teaches. Think about 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Well, I'm glad you brought those passages up. I'm glad that you study your Bible well enough to know those passages. But now that we have discovered the general principle, by the way, that Paul apparently agrees with, as we've seen in Romans and Galatians, that women, that women can be in ministry and are in fact leaders and gifted by God to serve, now we can use that as a basis for understanding what Paul is saying, specifically in those passages. In other words, and this is an important biblical idea, we use scripture to interpret scripture. It gives us a framework then to understand and wrestle with passages like that. And so, by the way, when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul says the women are to be kept silent in the churches, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, the Bible says it. I guess I have to believe it. That settles it. Maybe we've been doing it wrong. The context that Paul is dealing with is a worship service happening in the Corinthian church that has been getting out of control. They've been doing all kinds of things where there's no flow. It's not a good witness to those outside of the church. And specifically what we know is women here are interrupting the service by asking questions. They're interrupting the sermon. They're interrupting the worship. Remember, many of them are uneducated. They, they just don't know, and they don't know better. Paul says, don't do that. 
be like interrupting me in the middle of the message. Don't do that. It's, it's interrupting the flow of the service and therefore interrupting what God may want to do there. Paul is not saying a woman should never speak because in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says in the context again of a worship service, but every woman while praying or prophesying so obviously, they are speaking. They are leading in the church. And in that specific passage, he also talks about women and head coverings, things that are very specific to that culture. But he assumes that women will be having an important part of the service. But it needs to be orderly. That's his point. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's a little more difficult passage, at least for me. And I could probably spend an entire sermon. I'm not going to do that, at least not today. But I do want to commend this to you. In light of what we have seen generally about Paul's ministry and the ministry in the New Testament, it's fair to assume he hasn't changed his mind. So what do we do with 1 Timothy 2? Philip B. Payne is a gentleman that I've come to admire and respect in his scholarship. He started out intending to write a book on why women should not have pastoral roles in the church. However, <laughs> to his surprise, when he did his research and he began to do his own study, he discovered exactly the opposite. And so he argues, and I think persuasively, that when Paul says women should learn in quiet submission, one, he notes, the radical imperative that Paul does say women should learn. That in itself was revolutionary. But again, what he suggests is Paul is writing specifically to Timothy, and in the context of 1 Timothy, that whole book is about false teachers and, and, and taking on the false doctrines. Paul wants these women who have been swayed by false teaching to listen and learn so that they can know the truth. Therefore, he is not saying that women everywhere in the church should listen and learn but never speak. No, he's talking specifically about women who have been influenced by these false teachings, which 1 Timothy is all about. Paul is the apostle of freedom and grace and transformation. And sometimes it's just so ironic how we've turned him into a very narrow and legalistic person because the reality is, there we go, that'll get your attention. Because all indication is, Paul was saying that he appreciated all of God's children and the gifts they had to offer. Now I say all of that to lead to this. Adrian Nolan, Adrian's here, has served on our staff uh, now for how, how long have you been with us? Five years? Seems like yesterday we brought her on, actually, but uh, she's been our director of youth discipleship, and she has done a fantastic job. I've seen her study Hebrew. She knows her Hebrew much better than I do, by the way. She's not afraid to ask tough questions. She's not afraid to take tough questions, because our young people have some tough questions. But she has led our young people with grace and, boy, increasing wisdom, too. She has humility and loves our young people and their families. She has been serving us, therefore, in a pastoral role for quite some time, and I believe it is time we acknowledge that. 
And so at my request, and our board of elders has agreed, that at the end of this month, we're going to give Adrian a new title, the Pastor of Youth Discipleship. Amen. Thank you. We just want to recognize the contribution, the significant contribution that she's making to our church. And I am glad that we have her perspective on our ministry team. Adrian is a treasure, and I know and I hope that you will support me and Adrian in this. But I want to tell you this. Adrian has resisted this for quite some time. She did not seek this title. She said, I don't want to cause controversy or upset anybody, Jeff. And I appreciate that. But as we continue to pray about it, and I've thought about it, and I've encouraged her, I said to her, Adrian, there are young women in our youth group who need to know and see that we don't have second-class citizens around here. And so it's time to step up, and she has and will And we are grateful for the gifts that God has given her and the contribution of every person in our church. You know, there's nothing like the church. Nothing in the world like the church. And I'm glad, for one, to be a part of this type of community. So I just want to leave you with this, and then we will conclude. I know this has been more of a teaching day not quite as emotional, but I think important nonetheless. But when the Holy Spirit begins to work, this is what he calls us to. 1 Peter 4 says this, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves They should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's be good stewards as a church of everyone's full potential. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that in this place we aspire to be a different kind of community. In this place, Lord, everyone matters. Everyone counts. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us how to follow you with passion. Lord, I thank you that in this church we have raised up both men and women for ministry. I thank you, Lord, that we're not done I thank you, Lord, that you equip us for the calling that you have placed on our lives. And Lord, I realize that we live in a day and age when people need to see Jesus. Lord, may your church, so battered by what the media hangs on to, may your church rise up and be a beautiful thing and may the world see that we're different. But Lord, may it be in a good, glorious way that we could give you praise, that we would, uh, Lord, offer you our very best, that, Lord, uh, others would come to know that you are God. May we, Lord, live above the curse, and may we live in your blessing fully, I pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.